to remind us that no matter where we go, no matter how high the mountain may be, no matter the depth of the valley, there is no place that we can go as we learn in Job that he cannot pursue us. He can pursue us to the very ends of the earth. So we are grateful to the Lord for his goodness. There's so much going on in the world, and I know we all have so much going on in our personal lives, and it is such a helpful reminder to, to be told that we are not alone, which means what I feel does not always align with what is true. I may feel alone. I may even be lonely. But if the word of God says that he will never leave me nor forsake me, the fact is, is that I'm not alone. And so I can't lean on my feelings. I must trust in what I know is true from the word of God. And I'm not alone. So we are just so grateful to be back in the house of the Lord to be reminded that we are not alone, which is so um, fitting this week because we are talking about today our permanent priest, the permanent priest that we have in Christ. So if you remember last week, we talked about the irresponsibility of the priests who were in Israel at the time. They were the sons of Eli. Eli had two sons, those being Hophni and Phinehas. And what we saw clearly through the text over the last few weeks is that not only were they immoral in their actions, but we also saw that their immorality was affecting everything around them. As the Bible says, so much so that Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. They had disregarded any truth, any absolute truth, and truth became relative. It changed based on what the person thought. And this tone was set because of the sin of the priests in Israel. Now, this is significant in the sense that we learn just how much of an effect that the behavior of unfaithful men can have. But it is also a reminder to us that even the most faithful priests, even the most faithful prophets, even the most faithful pastors, preachers like myself, are still racked with our own sin. Yes, we see that God is in fact, we see it coming. He is raising up a prophet and a priest in Samuel. But when we read this, are we really reading about Samuel or is the text referring to somebody else? While on the surface it is going to appear and has appeared that it is referring to Samuel, once we look in depth regarding this priest and the priesthood that it is referring to in the text, we will see that everything we read today is not talking about Samuel, but it is a foreshadowing of our true high priest. Look with me if you will. As we conclude from last week, last week we talked about the profane priest. This week we're wrapping that up by talking about the permanent priest. Look with me if you will to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. It says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come 
out before my anointed forever. And everyone who's left in, in my house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word. God, there is so much hope in the worship that we've already had, reminding us that you will never leave us alone, that you will never leave us to ourselves, that you are always there with us. But God, there is even more hope coming to us today in the word that reminds us that you are with us. You are our high priest. You are not just sacrifice, but you are also mediator on our behalf. So God, I pray that we are going to find such comfort knowing that we have a permanent and fixed priest who is ever interceding on our behalf. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So last Sunday, um, I was trying to rush out of here because me and Chris had a date. Um, we went to go see Death on the Nile, right? And so if you don't know what, what that's about, it's one, I love murder mysteries, so it's one of those murder mysteries where you know, they're lining all of the, the, the details up in the beginning of the movie because they're revealing certain details about what's happening. They're giving you a foreshadowing. They're building a framework. So once you get to the end and they reveal who the murderer is, you think, ah, that's what that thing meant and that's what this thing meant. And so they give you this backstory so you have to pay attention early on in order to really know what's happening. And typically in these movies, you know, my sweet wife will ask me questions like, now what is that again? Now who, who is that? I don't understand what's going on. And so typically I try to stay alert because I'm, you know, here explaining, okay, well this is somebody and this is this, and you remember they said this, and she's like, okay, 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 okay. You know, the problem though is when we watch movies at the theater, we can't pause it like we do at home. And so you really have to be on your toes. You can't go back. Now I don't know if Kristen knows this or not, but for about the first 45 minutes of that movie last week, I was asleep. <laughs> I was knocked out. And I'm just telling y'all, I was trying my best. But it was like 30 minutes of previews, and I was just struggling. And so, like, after the previews, then we, like, in 1945, and I'm like, I, I just, I just, I, let me rest. Let me rest my eyes. After all, I mean, give me a break. You know, I teach, I preach. So Sundays are rough. And so I was just dozing off. And so once the movie starts, I'm just missing all these details, right? Like I keep missing all of this backstory. And so once I finally like can get alert enough to stay awake, I have no idea what's happening. They're on a boat. I don't know why they're on a boat. And I can tell, all right, something is about to happen. This is a murder mystery, so I know this is, you know, the time somebody's probably going to get killed. And so I'm just trying to play catch-up. Chris has asked me questions. I'm like, oh, yeah, you know this and that. I have no idea what I'm talking about. And so once the murder actually happens, I start guessing because I don't have any context on who should be dying and who should be getting killed, who's in a relationship with anybody. I can't draw any conclusions. And so I kept thinking, you know, if I knew what was going on, if I knew the backstory, I'd probably do a better job of being able to tell who's actually guilty of the murder here. But I didn't know the backstory. And so every time I would guess, I was wrong because I didn't know the history. Now, when we read the Bible, when we read passages like we're reading today, 
This for us is backstory, all right? This is not the time for us to be trying to draw conclusions without understanding what is actually happening here. And so what we need to understand is that it is a testimony and a foreshadowing for us of Jesus. So how do I draw the conclusion here? It says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest. Now, where have we seen this type of language before? I will raise up myself a faithful priest. We've seen it before somewhere. And it's in Deuteronomy. And it's Moses speaking. In Deuteronomy 18 and 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So, okay, we're, we're building our case, right? The big reveal awaits. We have seen in our text that there will be a priest, but he's not going to be like any other priest. He will be faithful. He will do what is in the heart and in the mind of God, and he shall go in and out forever before the anointed one. But we're not just getting a priest either. We go all the way back to Deuteronomy and Moses is saying, but, but I'm telling you of a prophet that's actually coming. So there are two things that we know that are coming. There's a priest coming and there is a prophet coming. Now, either they're talking about one prophet and one priest separately or it's one person who will be both priest and prophet. He is a priest who will not just know the mind of God. He will not just know the heart of the Father, but he will have the mind of, the God, of God. He will have the heart of the Father, and he will do accords to that. Then look at this key phrase here. He will go in and out before my anointed forever. Now, this is an interesting word because when we read it from our English Standard Version, all we see is anointed, my anointed one. We don't know what it means. But in the Hebrew, it's a very interesting word. It is a word that is Mashiach. Now, if you hear that word, it initially probably doesn't even sound familiar, Mashiach. But you probably are more used and accustomed to the Greek iteration of this word, which is Messiah. The author here is actually saying that the Messiah, the anointed one, will reside in a house built by God that is sure, and he shall go in and out forever. Listen, as faithful and as diligent as Samuel will become as a priest, he would still only be but a foreshadowing of the priest who would rule not just as prophet. Not just as priest, but he's also going to rule as king as well. See, the issue with any other prophet, any other priest, or any other king is that no matter how good they are, they ain't sinless. No matter how good I am at preaching, no matter how good I am at opening up God's word and declaring the truth, there's this one common issue that I got that y'all got, and it's sin. Specifically, there is a fatal flaw for us 
if we are looking for a sinner to be our mediator between us and God. Yes, Hophni and Phineas are the worst examples of corruption, but they are at least a reminder for us. What's that reminder? Y'all, we need a priest. We need somebody who can go between us and God and stand for us and mediate on our behalf to state our case for God. But the issue is, is that as long as I have sin, as long as any preacher, pastor, priest, whatever they may be, has sin, they are an ineffective mediator. Because they got the same condition you got. And God has already told us that his just response to sin is death. I want to go to an interesting text for you in Leviticus. This is the one time a year we're going to go to Leviticus, right? We're going to go to Leviticus chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 22, and I really want you to get this image in your mind. When you see what's happening here, I want you to imagine this as if it were happening. This is what is written in the law. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of the things, all the things that by the commandments of the Lord, the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat a male without blemish and shall lay his hand on the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all his fat he shall burn on the altar, like the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin, and after all that, he shall be forgiven. Now do you see, if you really read this, how gruesome this really is? I mean, this is a sort of display for someone who didn't sin intentionally and certainly considering that the animal wouldn't even actually take the sins away. I want you to picture this in your mind. Close your eyes if you must. You grab a goat, a male, one that looks like it is without any fault. So I guess as good as a goat can look. You take your hand. And as that goat looks at you in the eyes, you hold the goat by the head. Probably calm, because it would have been one of your goats. Looking you in the eyes, because it probably trusts you. And then all of a sudden, you take a knife, and as it stares at you in the eyes, you slice it right at the point of the carotid artery. Blood starts to shoot and spurt out everywhere. That animal, which was once alive, now lifeless, stares still at you with eyes fixed. You burn the goat. The priest then takes some of the blood and puts it on the horns of the altar and then pours the rest out all over the base of the altar. 
burning the fat, and then the priest will make an atonement for sin. And finally, he will be forgiven. Listen, this is a bloody mess. But why? Because God is showing us as clearly as possible that my sin, your sin, is filthy. Our sin is messy and the requirement of God that, that to have that sin atoned for is hard to endure. And think about this. Every time someone committed some sin, whether intentionally or it came to light later, they would have to go through this same gruesome process over and over and over and over again. And the priest stood there in order to make the atoning sacrifice. And you did this over and over and over again in perpetuity because there was no perfect goat. There was no perfect lamb that would sufficiently take away our sins. And every time you sin, you were reminded of that. It reminded me of this story, something that happened to me personally, actually. When I was a kid, I think I was a teenager or so, we had this screen-in deck in our house in Centerpoint. And one day, there was a bird that actually got inside of that screen deck, and it looked like it had an injured wing. And so after being told not to, I took the bird in the house and put it in the garage. And I had just let it hop around for a little bit, and I stayed there. You know, I entertained the bird for a little bit. Of course, it was afraid of me. But then we had to go somewhere, maybe the store. And so I figured, all right, well, it'll be okay. I can leave it down here. Everybody else will be gone. Nobody knows the bird is here. And I got in the car and we went. And when we came back, I remember rushing, but also sneaking downstairs to the garage to see where the bird was. But I couldn't find it. I looked everywhere. I figured it couldn't be far. It's a finite space, so it had to be around there somewhere. And I remember, oh, you know what? That bird kept sneaking under the treadmill. So let me see if it's under the treadmill. So I began tipping the treadmill over to see if the bird was there. And I heard a few sounds, but I thought it was a piece of the treadmill actually dragging across the floor. So I tip it back up. And then the horror. The bird lay dead because I had just crushed his head. It was gruesome. In fact, his eye had actually popped out of the socket. And probably the shock more than anything actually made me cry. But the other part that made me so emotional was that I immediately knew I was the reason that bird was dead. To this day, I can feel the emotions of killing that bird. I can see it and I can't shake it. So I took the bird, I put it in a box, and I buried it. I tried to hide my fence as quickly as possible. But I kept thinking about it. Now, it was an accident, but I didn't change what happened. Now, think. Think about what these people would have felt every single time they had to kill some animal because of their own sin. 
They had to go through this process over and over again because God wanted them and all of us to see how terrible the result of our sin really is. So how can we escape that? How can we escape the gruesomeness of our sin? Where there are two things we need. There are two really vital things that we need. The first one that we need, we need a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice that can adequately and permanently take away our sin. In Hebrews 9 and 22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We can rule out any animal sacrifice being sufficient enough, for these had to be offered over and over again. So if animals are not sufficient, then what could be offered? Well, it would have to be something that, first of all, could sin, okay? See, the problem with offering animals is that offering an animal is disproportionate. The animal cannot sin against God because it was not made in the image of God, nor was it given the capacity to even know God. So the reason you offer it is because it doesn't have sin, but the flaw is that it can't have sin. So it can't actually effectively take away sin. See, that is a paradox there. In order to take away the penalty of sin, we would then need someone who could sin but would not sin. If there existed such a person, we would then need that person to be willing to give themselves up as a human sacrifice to take away everyone's sin. Elliot watches this show called Bluey, okay? I know he's immediately attentive now. And one of the episodes, Bluey's sister gets sick. And she has to stay in the hospital for a few days. So Bluey and her dad make this little mini movie for Bingo to watch with her mom while she's in the hospital. And it is about a little girl who gets a puppy, but the puppy gets sick. So the girl takes the puppy to a healer and asks her to heal the puppy. And she tells her, I will heal your puppy, but I need you to get a pair of purple pants from someone and bring them back to me. Now, this immediately sounds kind of weird, but in this particular episode, everybody had on purple pants, all right? So it's not that hard to find purple pants. And so she thinks, oh, that's easy. So she actually just takes off her purple pants and offers her own purple pants up so that her dog will get better. But the healer tells her, but see, your pants won't do I actually need pants from someone who has never been sick. She then goes around and realizes that such a person does not exist. Now, they don't intend for this, but it actually is such a picture of the gospel. Now, the only difference here is that that priestess would have allowed that girl to come back and she would say, I know you didn't find someone to give of themselves, so I'm actually going to give of myself. And she would have stepped out of her place of prestige and become the sacrifice. So, yes, we likewise need a sacrifice. But we also need a second thing. We need a priest. 
We need a sacrifice, but we also need a priest. In Jesus, we have both. Why do we need a priest, though? Because not only do we need a sinless sacrifice to be the atonement for our sins, but we also need a mediator who can actually offer that sin, that sacrifice in a way that it will be accepted by God. This is who Jesus is to us. He is the sacrifice who knew no sin. He was impervious to temptation, which makes him adequate. But the fact that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh also means that he resisted sin. Romans 8, 2. It says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit what is the righteous requirement of the law perfect perfection perfect obedience which none of us has the ability to do. So Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in that he knew no sin. But this is what makes him such an effective priest. He didn't know any sin, but he who knew no sin, what did he do? He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Which means God now looked at him and saw my sin, and then he looked at me and saw the righteousness of Jesus. How in the world does that work? Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he offered himself as the sacrifice once and for all. He lived 33 sinless years, which ensured that he was an adequate sacrifice. But as we learn, he was also a man who was tempted to sin, but resisted the temptation. He is a man who can be tempted, but who would not sin. He is to be the sacrifice, but who would have the merit to offer him up as a sacrifice. He did. Only him. He humbled himself to death, dying the death of a despised criminal, making him who knew no sin, sin, so that we would become the righteousness of God. He offered him self as a sacrifice, which means he is not just sacrifice, but he is priest as well. Yes, we don't have a priest who can be subjected to the sins or who can lead us apart from the will of God. In Hebrews 7, 23, it says this. And I think this puts it all in the words better than we could ever put it. The former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Look at the beauty of this text. All other priests, Samuel included, Brandon included, would be removed from office by one thing that they all had to be subjected to, which was death. And this should help us understand, even in the Catholic Church, the fallacy of that whole faith. That there would be any person who would be a more effective mediator between man and God than Jesus Christ. No, there is no need for a priest for me to go confess to. There is no need for me to do any offerings or any sacrifices. There is no need for me to do anything to stand in between the gap because Jesus Christ has done that. I don't need a pope. There is one man who is at the center of the church, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the head of our church. So when we go back to our text, then we can clearly see now that there is one priest who stands above all and one who will hold his office forever, and that is our great high priest, Jesus. He is before the Father. He is interceding and mediating on our behalf, and he does not offer any more sacrifices because he has offered the final and greatest sacrifice known to man, which is himself. He is now identifiable to us because he felt, he suffered, he endured, and overcame all the weakness of human flesh. When he was raised from the dead, he secured his place as our priest forever. And he defeated any leverage that was held over us. So now, we don't need a human priest to mediate between us and God. We don't need a pope to be our representative. Y'all don't even need me to stand in the gap. We have Christ, and Christ alone is our permanent priest who heads this church. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the word.
God, we thank you that you have given us one final sacrifice, but who also stands as our final priest in this eternal priesthood. God, we are full of sin. God, every single day we dishonor you in thought, we dishonor you in word, we dishonor you in deed. And the only thing that is staving off the penalty of our sins for those of us who believe is Jesus. That God, he on our behalf has made the final payment for our sins. Therefore, we who know you do not have to endure because you no longer see the believers as sinners, but you see us as the righteousness of God. But God, we must also be reminded for those of us who do not believe. The only thing that is staving off the wrath of God for those of us who do not believe is death. And God, like every other priest was subjected to death, every single one of us will be as well. And God, my prayer is that every one of us in this room will know you in the fullness of who you are and in your priesthood and in your sacrificial atonement. God, I don't have the power within myself to be right, to do right. But God, you have credited to my account the righteousness of a perfect, sinless Savior. God, if any of us in this room has any hope at eternity with you, it will be because you have credited the righteousness of Jesus to us. God, we are reminded in the Bible it tells us that Abraham believed but it was still counted to him as righteousness. He wasn't righteous, but you treated him as righteousness. And so, God, we just pray, if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know you, God, that you will unveil yourself to them, that you will open their eyes, that the scales will fall off. God, that they will see that those around them are not the greatest threat to their lives, but that each one of us individually is the greatest threat to ourselves. God, we are not the heroes in our story. We are the greatest villain, and we need a Savior. And the only adequate Savior we know is Jesus Christ. So, God, I pray if there's anyone in here that this would be the day they come to know you. And, God, I just pray for those of us who do know you that this will be a day that you reaffirm us and we know that we have in us a mediator, an intercessor in Jesus Christ, and I can take everything to him. I can take my sin. I can take my anxieties. I can take the, the pains of life. I can take the trauma of life, and he makes it well. I can take my disappointments, and he makes them well. So, God, we thank you for the permanent priest that you've given us in Jesus.
Help us know him in the fullness of salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.